Not too bad, but the market seems not to be impressed because at some point the share price was down 9%. I, uh, you know, we know the guys have been having issues that, yes, we've been seeing this conflict as of Russia, uh, the inflation going up, rising interest rates, underperforming Chinese economy. But looking forward, we expect things to pick up as of already seen when it comes to supply chain bottlenecks, easy. It's the result that managed to help when it comes to the delivery with time. And then also we've seen that with the economies, you know, uh, the inventory levels as well getting much better. So I'm saying, you know, it depends how you want to see this. They are calling this one of their best, uh, the best ever first quarter, but compared to the fourth quarter, it was not that great, meaning the previous quarter. But year on year, it was the best one. And they were benefiting from... If you are able to increase prices, I, I think you've got your model right, you know. And you will think they've managed to do that for paper products and which managed to offset. We know all this mm. cost inflation, whether it's energy, stuff like that. And also, because the economy is not doing that great, as a result, the demand was not that great, hence they had lower sales volumes. But if you have an EBITDA margin of 17.5%, I, I mean... Who, who, who gets a, a operating profit margin like that? Uh, uh, I should say trading profit margin because I guess that strips out interest and depreciation, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Here you have your sales down only a near 2%, but you also manage because you generated enough cash. You're able to reduce your debt by 35%. Yeah, mm. if you compare it with the previous quarter, not the first quarter of that previous period, not the comparable period, because we've seen this whole impact, you know, when it comes to the weakening of the US dollar, it had an impact because as a result, that increased their euro-denominated debt, converted mm. at higher rates. But it generally guys reducing debt at this time, 35%. People are struggling with their debts. So profit is headline any special up 55%. Personally, I don't think it was a bad set of results. I can live with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I mean, just talk to me maybe around some of these inventory cluts that there might be in the market. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that this is firms who have decided, hey, because of the global <laughs> supply chain challenges we have, they would want to stock up on packaging and all of that kind of stuff. Um, what is SAPI saying in its outlook about when they think this sort of oversupply of inventories on the part of many of their clients is set to be Remember the inv- you know, we've, we've, the inventory there that began with the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions in mm. late 2021 and subsequent the, the, the chronic global logistic bottlenecks which hindered material flows. So, but the recent improvement in global supply chain, that itself resulted in a reduction, as we said earlier, when it comes to delivery late times. And now there's a surge in customer inventory levels. So basically, I think in simple, normal English, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's shift away, I guess, from uh, SAPI and uh, check in with uh, the latest from this story. And uh, I remember when this came out and uh, headed to the courts, the Tourism Equity Fund. Uh, give us some of the background for some of the people who might not have been following what was happening in so far as tourism uh, sector relief was concerned during the height of the hard lockdown. Uh, it's a matter I understand AfriForum and others took to the courts. And uh, it seems the outcome now might be precedent-setting, even though it might be moot now, because that state of disaster has long since ended. 
You know, we know that since COVID, when we had lockdowns, global economy is not doing okay. Economies or governments trying to stimulate their economies by mm-hmm. coming with grants, reliefs, and we know that tourism is one of those sectors that really felt the lockdowns because we were not allowed to move, let alone international travelers. And even when we look into business traveling, it also stopped because now we realize that there's no point for Aya to go to Cape Town for a meeting for an hour. So we started doing the virtual meetings. So that industry really felt it. And even if you look into the big boys, most, if not all of them, they even had to go to the extent of doing a rights issue, trying to raise more funds because it was just so bad for them. So the minister, they had to come with a relief grant scheme to say, listen, uh, you smaller than my guys, and then most importantly, you must be PEE, you are allowed to, you can create a grant of 50,000. But now the problem here, it was solidarity, after forum setting, no, the relief doesn't have to be racially based. We are all feeling the impact of lockdowns in COVID-19. So they went to court to say, no, this whole thing of using uh, the color of the skin as one of the criteria is not right. And they lost the first case, then on appeal, the money to win it. So now this time around, the government itself, they wanted to take that to the constitutional court, then they failed on that. The Supreme Court of Appeal said, no, there's no point of you taking it there. So all it says is that going forward, whether we declare a, a state of disaster, if you have to help people, you are not allowed to use color, you know, as one of the criteria, because uh, also went further to debate that, listen, uh, in this kind of situation, a grant doesn't even count when it comes to the BE codes. So, so this is interesting, um, because in a way, the interpretation on the part of the uh, then Department of Tourism was a view that said, look, as a result of the tourism sector codes, they would have, in the extension of this relief, have to consider and give some category of preference to black-owned or structurally disadvantaged persons who operate tourism establishments. But I guess the argument that um, you know the likes of Afri Forum were making was, well, no, this is not a typical kind of framework of support you would extend. So if you want to create a package of this thing, you would do it normally. But this one has expressly arisen as a result of the declaration of state of disaster. Um, and so in a sense, the argument was that you cannot... Um, have any systems of even fair discrimination for this one. So everybody who's been affected by this should be able indiscriminately to be able to apply and benefit from uh, from this kind of uh, relief. It's, a, it's an interesting, I guess, expression but that I also think uh, Makwe has implications for this argument being made by many now for a declaration of a state of disaster insofar as the ESCOM matter is concerned because it circumscribes to what degree that state of disaster can you know, allow people to discriminate on categories of preference for PEE and any other objective? I think when it comes to ESCOMEN, you are right. I, I think we unpaid it nicely. But remember, already we had an issue when it comes to the PEE ESCOM. And it's mm. already one of the newly appointed board members that oh, it has to be know. done away with it. You know, even before we even talk about the state of disaster, you know. So already just shows you the attitude when it comes to that, when it comes to PE, that side. And can we be just be honest? If we look into ESCOM itself, if they say you need to apply a boiler, as an example, 
if there's something like that, that they need. How many BE firms will be able to do that? <laughs> what they then they will do, they will go and hire a black skin to say, okay, we've got these guys, then they have to six percent. Then they qualify. Or alternatively, they'll get a nice imaging, uh, uh, what do you call it, engineering, black old engineering firms, and partner with them going forward, which mm-hmm. is much better because the guys are in the case. Now, the problem then will be, after partnering with that black-owned engineering firm in which the guys have the necessary skills and Mm -hmm. are capable, hence they've got their own firm, the question is, will you guys give them exposure and allow them to do their work as well so that they transfer skills? Because my problem with all these things, Mm. we we overlook the transference of skills. They get you as a professional, but will they? They didn't write the black face, Yes, you qualify with all the credentials. So mm. will they give you the exposure and transfer skills? Because going forward, come the next 10, 15 years, we should be able to tender that. You ask if we don't mm. have to meet them to go into that tender with them. We should be able to do it with them. But, but let's talk about this a bit more, Mark. Because I do think that even that characterization at the time by somebody as senior as a board member of ESCOM, was in many ways one a historical, but showed a lack of understanding of yes. how B is rolled out in state-owned companies. So let me give yeah. you an example. You you mentioned a boiler, no? Yeah? Mm-hmm. A boiler would have been manufactured by an OEM, yeah? yeah. So that OEM would have some after-sales contract with ESCOM. The only BE obligation that would be extended on that OEM is not to go find a middle person. Mm-hmm. The obligation would be to say create some supplier development framework. Or, similarly, there's something called the National Industrial you know, uh, Participation Program, the NIP, which says to them they must con- contribute to their supplier ecosystem a certain amount of money in order to continue to benefit. It doesn't say that you can go and pick up Ayabonga from the street and then say, Ayabonga, you are now a middleman for ABB. Come and do our turbines or whatever. I, I think that is, firstly, a gross mischaracterization. But also just shows okay. like the limited engagement with the evolution of transformation in our SOCs. It's the same as Transnet. Transnet doesn't go and look, you know, if they want to contract with General Electric, they go to General Electric and then say, GE, can you find some supplier base or a cohort of suppliers that you're going to work with to transfer skill, transfer technology, transfer know-how and all of those things? Uh, you are right, because if you look into the principle and what the PE thing is, like, you know, that affirmative action, what are you trying to achieve? You say people who never had opportunities must be given opportunities. Mm. And more importantly, is to say people at some point, they should be able to stand by themselves. What I'm yeah. saying is, you don't have to continue to be a subordinate forever and ever, and for you to be able to stand up by yourself in the next 5, 10 years, whatever period it is, it means there should be transference of skills. But now, people get comfortable with the fact that, okay, we are part of the deal, they get dividends, they don't even care, you know, about the operation and stuff like that. And that's mm-hmm. the problem, yeah. Yeah, and these guys, if you don't care, then they just leave you there. Others, if you make an initiative and say, I want to learn, they don't get to be happy with that, they start cyclining it. Because you get the guys out there who really want to mm. But unfortunately, you find companies which are not eager to do that, and they start sidelining them. So it's more of a mixed bag more than anything. Others don't mind, they don't need the skill. Others desperately would like to know how to do the job so that tomorrow they're independent.
Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's an interesting one, uh, and I do think it's a, it's one we're gonna have to continuously come back to. Um, insofar as uh, you know, this uh, I guess skills transfer issue is concerned. But let's come to the world of retail. I find this interesting. Uh, Pick and pay comes out. They put out some numbers for 10 months through to the end of December. It reinforces what you and I have always spoken about. It seems for many of these retailers, not just the food retailers, but even, you know, the clothing retailers as well uh, with multiple channels, that the big growth drivers in the case of pick and pay, and, you know, I would even say some of their own competitors, happens to be at the bottom end of the segment. You know, so boxer superstores blowing the lights out and similarly, their budget clothing division of pick and pay, both as a standalone or that one latched onto some of their existing stores, also being seen as a, a key growth driver. Something is happening, Marque, at the lower segment of the income distribution that a lot of retailers are watching very closely. Oh, yeah, it is definitely. And I think, as you said, it's not just food, it's also clothing. People are looking for value for money and mm-hmm. all because economic conditions dictate to that. Very few people still afford to go and buy those like other things. And if you do afford, I probably will buy one or two items. You know, it's not going to be a day-to-day kind of a thing. Just like if you go and buy the nice food, it's not going to be a day-to-day. You know, when you want some very special occasions, you'll want to eat something special from maybe this uh, expensive uh, retailer. But generally, day-to-day, that's where demand is. And if you are able to cater for day-to-day, people realize it's really for money. Personally, I think you've got a winning formula. And this also explains why even the likes of ShopRite, they want to buy a lot. They spend mm. a lot clothing stores because they can see that it's happening already. They've got a good form. Why not capitalize on that? And you are right. Boxer, you can maybe look at it as an equivalent of safe when it mm. comes to the likes of ShopRite. And they themselves, pick and pay, which I think I have to give it to them, they recognize them as their growth engines. That is your box of stores and mm. stand alone clothing stores. Ish, ish, ish. But talk to me about also some of these online channels. I mean, these guys have a partnership with Mr. D and they also have their own uh, uh, last mile offering in terms of ASAP. How have those performed? Very well. And as you are saying, the guys managed to successfully launch that Mr. D app. And remember, now it's countrywide, and that's alongside that existing pick and pay asset. And that's where you guys are. We at Boxer don't need that. And it's all well and good <laughs> that they do that. <laughs> they do that because you want to cater for all segments, even though you know that you're making good money from the lower NSM. You don't want to ignore the higher NSM. Hence, even with the likes of ShopRite are starting to eat the lunch of Woolworths when it comes to the higher NSM. So you still need that exposure. You still need to give the higher NSM what they need. But you know that your rent will be paid by the lower NSM. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I have gone to a township rural mall. There's no to let. Ah, there isn't. No, no, fully occupied, fully tenanted. But you go to this higher NSM uh, uh, malls, now and then you'll see to let, to let. Maybe then another question, Mark, relates to this question on, um, I guess, uh, and, and it's something in relation to, to something I want to hear your thoughts on, Mark. To what degree this load shedding issue 
has triggered a reprioritization of capital investment. I mean, Pick and Pay mentions it. We've heard it a few from a few of the retailers as well and some of the landlords. Uh, and they are saying, look, our two growth areas, Boxer and, you know, uh, budget clothing, um, are the key areas we're still going to spend CapEx on. But we would have spent other CapEx that we've now had to reprioritize in order to think about how we install solar and how we do all manner of other things. I, I think if you are a high-end retailer, you know people are not coming to shop every day, they're not coming to buy all these expensive things every day. Mm. For you to lose three hours of shopping is something. But if you are selling, you know, daily necessities, people are coming to your shop every day. You cannot afford to lose an hour of trading. Hence, the likes of Pay and Boxer, they all have backup power and they continue to be operational throughout the load trading. But as you've been saying, unfortunately, the likes of Pig and Pay had to spend almost $346 million on diesel only in the past 10 months. Remember, ShopRite, they spent almost $560 million in six months. So, we're trading, basically, it increases the cost of doing business. And that's on top of the high inflation, high interest rates, struggling consumer, then you've got an at all. Because for you to survive in this day, you need some backup. Whether it's solar, generator, whatever but you do, and bearing in mind that we've not even yet counted, you know, food that went into waste. Yeah, it's one of those things, Markwe. Markwe, hold the line there for me for a second. We're going to take a quick spot break. When we come back, I want us to continue on this story here of pick and pay and what we see there. And then, of course, it seems the uh, Industrial Development Corporation, uh, which uh, is out in full force here at the mining in Daba, uh, announcing alongside Orion Minerals, who mine zinc out in Priska and in Nurka, that uh, they've given them a, a senior secured convertible loan facility. And uh, we'll be talking about that after this brief break. Yeah, 17 minutes it is before uh, 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, yeah, we are speaking to Mark Masilela, Chief Investment Officer and Founder out at Mark Fund Managers and uh, taking a look at some of the latest in company news. And uh, Mark the one story, I guess, uh, before we uh, leave the pick and pay one, uh, it comes out of the Nord Cup and we'll come back to that in the world of zinc. But uh, talk to me just briefly, I guess, about some of the other issues that often we look at in retail numbers. Internal selling price inflation uh, looking, I guess, um, a lot softer than what uh, food price inflation came in at. Uh, And of course, a big part of the inflation that would have driven some of the selling prices here is in the lower category type products. What impact has that had on the ability, I guess, to uh, generate strong trading profit outcomes here? You know, they don't have much of a headwind, you know, given that it's sitting at 10%, they are internal selling price inflation for four months. You know, that's not even for 10 months. And that's below the 12.2% when you look into our CPI for food. And remember, shop rise for six months, internal selling price inflation was at 9.4%. And it's the same reasons as you've seen with shop rank, mainly because of boxers. In the case of shop rank, it was useless greater exposure to commodity categories where inflationary pressures has been the highest. And just for the sake of listeners, remember we know with the Russia-Ukraine issue, you had maize prices, wheat, corn, you know, all those things going up. And we know the lower LSM, we buy more of stable food. And those kind of things, they get to feed more into stable food. And even if you look at the maize, it's not just a normal minimum that we eat, we look into yellow maize, it's also priced in dollars, 
and then at the point where the dollar is doing okay, the rent is working, that's inflationary, and we use the yellow lace, you know, as a fit when it comes to chicken. And I, and I guess, you know, th- those are the uh, categories of products which are reliant on commodity supply chains, which, uh, as all of us know and many of our listeners know, have been uh, faced with significant challenges in the last while. Um, yeah, some slower t- Yeah, yeah. But maybe just before we wrap up on this story, your outlook, Mark, well, your expectations and anticipation of what things are going to look like in the retail environment. The headwinds are there. It's the pandemic. It's the supply chains that are still challenged. It's many other things that we faced with. What are your expectations? I think food retail will continue to do okay because we still need to eat no matter what. And mm. say, worst case scenario, we get to a point where we get a recession and the government has to come and stimulate the economy. They are going to still continue to help the lower MSM. And we know that those are the kind of people that spend more than 50% of their income on food. So I think they are more defensive. Yeah, yeah. And then the last story I want us to look at, uh, yeah, definitive agreement signed here by the IDC and uh, the Apriska Copper Zinc Mine Convertible Loan Facility of uh, $250 million or a quarter of a billion rand here. What's going to happen here? And uh, maybe just explain to us, uh, Marco, because we know this was a mothballed operation. I think it was mothballed in '93. Um Why is there so much water in this mine? Because it is every mining house, they have to continuously pump up the water. As we know, when you dig, then you get water. Hence, people have boreholes, so automatically a mine will have some water. Hence, the water license becomes very critical for mining houses. Hence, the pumping out of water becomes so important. The guys will have the necessary money to be able to do that, as well as it has most part. But <clears throat> this whole issue, for them to get it to production, if they collect any production, they had to raise capital. And they did get money from triple flag, something like that, but it was conventional. Could you have to get another person to come in, you know, so that the project is fully, or the whole development is fully funded. Then in this instance, they managed to get ITC. And it's convertible loan, meaning IDC, they will be, if they want to, exchange that, including the capitalized interest, to get shares in the mine. And I think that talking about the price, the value of that of 1.2 billion. So what's interesting here, I never thought the likes of IDC can finance a bankable feasibility study. Because this guy, and I think we need to understand that they have not mm. yet reached their final investment position. So, as they finish their studies, should it happen that they realize that they don't have a bankable uh, case? What's going to happen? You can see ITC, they are low, it's ranking number one, they've got some security which is directly linked to the project itself and also. Some security is indirectly linked, you know, to, to to the project. But I think the biggest thing for the ITC, they're more also interested when it comes to the social impact that this whole project will do when it comes to the northern Cape. Magwe, let's leave it here for tonight. And uh, we're going to be watching quite closely what comes out of uh, that zinc and copper mine because, hey, price environment of zinc and copper. 
and uh, the importance placed on it. Uh, you could see many people at the mining end are hovering about. I'm looking for this kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the people of the North Cup, uh, I remember at some stage there was uh, some Siabusa or Sia, you know, what's the name of that community in Briska? I forget the name of the community. Sia, Siabusa or something. No, Siabusa is in Pumalanga, but there's a Sia something uh, there in North Cup. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, members of that community, get yourselves ready because uh, it's not only investment that's coming your way, but uh, one would think a lot of up and down and uh, a lot of busy times ahead. Makwe, always a pleasure, Baba. Catching up with you, Setawaz. Makwe Masilela, the Chief Investment Officer and Founder at Makwe Fund Managers.